The Holy Gospel according to John, the first chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see my Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. Politics, politics, came into existence the minute that Eve was created. If you define politics as making decisions that affect the group, Adam and Eve likely would have done just fine had one been placed in the Garden of Eden and the other about 500 miles away. They were not 500 miles apart. Had they been, the Bible would be a really boring book for the same reason that it is very easy to parent children if they all only lived in separate rooms. Things get messy when they're thrown together, wrestling on the floor, or fighting over the same Legos or whatever. But Adam and Eve were not created in their own private rooms, and the Garden of Eden didn't have single rooms, and so they were tossed together and immediately began making decisions that affected the group. Human beings cannot exist without politics in some way, shape, or form. At best, politics give our society shape and limits. At worst, politics fosters suspicion, abuses power, and perpetuates blame-laying. Most of the time throughout history, as you know, politics expresses itself at its worst. 
Even China's Ming dynasty was fraught with corruption. The Roman Empire spawned Nero and the Colosseum where Christians were killed for sport. The Third Reich gave us Hitler and the extermination of two-thirds of the Jewish population in Europe. Historically and globally, politics and its decisions that affect the group have resulted in the destruction of the unity between people. It's inevitable. In short, broken people create broken systems. Even in our time, when we celebrate the profound impact that Martin Luther King Jr. has had on our country and indeed the world, we know that this was exacted at a tremendous cost. Even before his assassination, as he considered his call to ministry, MLK suffered his father's wrath and disappointment by drinking beer and playing pool, which his namesake, Martin Luther, gladly would have applauded. In his work to gain civil rights for the African Americans in the United States, his house was attacked. The lives of his family were threatened. And soon, James Earl Ray would silence this fabulous preacher with a bullet, allying himself with the racism espoused by the George Wallace presidential campaign. And yet, in the midst of that political chaos, God's word comes not to JFK or James Earl Ray, but to MLK. Now, 2,000 years before him, in the time of Jesus, it's King Herod's insecurity that lands John the Baptist in prison shortly after John's encounter with Jesus in this, in this morning's gospel. And it's, how, and it's Herod's cowardice that eventually lands John's head on a platter It's the wearisome political agenda of using death as the ultimate threat of control, which Jesus overturns by raising Lazarus from the dead. And if a government can't threaten its people with death, its power crumbles. Yet in the midst of that political chaos, God's word comes, not to King Herod, but to John the Baptist. 700 years before him, Isaiah reluctantly speaks his prophetic word to the despairing Jewish people as they're deported in chains, having witnessed the destruction of their temple. Have hope, says Isaiah to them. Take courage. Your God will come. Kings can scatter and enslave you, but God will never forget you. And yet, in the midst of that political chaos, God's word comes not to King Uzziah, or to the king of Babylon, but to Isaiah, the prophet. Finally, God's word comes in a new and different way, not to Governor Quirinius or Emperor Caesar Augustus, but in the person of Jesus Christ. John sees Jesus walking towards him one day and exclaims, Here he is, the Lamb of God. Here is the one that the entire world has been waiting for ever since that fiasco back in the Garden of Eden. Not just another king, because we've had plenty of those, but the king of kings. Jesus changes everything. God's word doesn't just come to Jesus. God's word is Jesus. God's word doesn't just touch this man 
as it did the prophets. God's word is embodied by the man named Jesus. God's word is now wrapped in our flesh. And that word often puts we who follow him into direct conflict with the political systems that shape our world. This is evidenced by Jesus' own ministry. He overturns the politics of his time by calling for a new and very radical mercy, by challenging authorities and allegiances, by preaching a revolutionary love, not just for friends, but also and especially for enemies, by touching and healing ones whom society had marginalized and exiled, by claiming and pointing to a kingdom not from this world, by seeking out the despised ones like tax collectors and prostitutes and thieves, by liberating people from their fear of death, by raising the dead back to life and promising eternal life beyond the grave. And when the political and religious leaders see that they can no longer control this man, they turn on him and give him his own death sentence through crucifixion on a cross. But because Jesus is the word of God and that word is life, the grave does not hold him as we know because God's word of life always trumps this world's word of death. Broken systems conquered by one who cannot be broken. Politics seeks to destroy something then that cannot be destroyed. Because of what Jesus did and because of who Jesus is, there is already a unity among among Christians that politics cannot destroy. Jesus models this by calling to his side the radical zealot Simon, a rebel against Roman rule, Judas Iscariot, political rat made famous by his betraying kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane, as well as the other disciples who, when confronted by a mob of hungry people, preferred to let them take care of themselves, while Jesus dared to feed them with five loaves and two fish. Jesus gathers his disciples together as different as they were from one another and loves them all, Jesus gathers all of us hungry people together around his table, and instead of telling us to feed ourselves and take care of ourselves, he feeds us with his own flesh and blood. Jesus calls into existence a unity that does not mean the same thing as uniformity. The word of God gathers together things and people that this world and its politics seek to destroy. The the author of Colossians writes, In him all things hold together. All things hold together. Christians already have a unity in Jesus Christ by virtue of his baptism. We hold Christ in common, if nothing else. In other words, the Democrat does not need to seek to be like the Republican, nor does the Republican need to seek to be like the Democrat, nor can one condemn the other. In Christ, all of these things are held together. However, all of us are accountable to the word of God in whose name we are baptized and by whose spirit we gather. And that means we are Christians first and citizens second. It means as as Republican or Democrat or whatever, you are Christians first. It's our highest calling then as Christians. It's our baptismal charge. It's our baptismal charge to be champions for the bullied, protectors of the weak, allies of the marginalized, 
to do the work that Jesus did and touch the diseased and love the outcast and welcome the stranger. These are not choices for the Christian. What the world seeks to destroy, Christ builds up, and so do we. What this finally does is challenge our sense of liberty and our understanding of entitlement seems to threaten our love for the very freedoms that we treasure most in our country. Because by binding ourselves to the word of God, we Christians lay down many of these civil freedoms. When a political mandate and a Christian faith come into conflict, the Christian responds and engages as a Christian first, and then as a citizen. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness cannot be on the backs of other people. Simply put, Christians have no choice but to love. It then is not a vote that we hold in common. It's not a political platform that we hold in common. It even goes beyond a pledge which we claim to hold in common. It's Christ we hold in common, and more importantly, it's Christ who holds us in common, gathering us by his spirit, feeding us at his table, washing us with his water. Christ chooses us to be his sons and daughters in this world and to follow him in doing this scary work in a scary world. Christ chooses us. We did not choose him. Christ, the Lamb of God, chooses to die for the sake of a world who hates him. Christ chooses to love us, we who are dirty and broken and so very messed up. Christ chooses to crush death and offer love and forgiveness and life to all people, all people, not some, but all. Christ chooses the side of the weak and the poor and the lonely by becoming weak and poor and dying all alone on the cross. Christ chooses to come to this world humbly, not as a raving lunatic. Christ chooses to lift up those that this world and our politics knock down, the ones who are marginalized based on gender or race or sexual orientation or whatever. Christ chooses to bless the wounded and the meek and the brokenhearted. He does not mock them. He dies for them. Christ chooses us, even when we make bad choices. Christ chooses us even when our nation makes bad choices. Christ chooses us when we as individuals make bad choices. Christ chooses us even when we do not choose him. This is the definition of grace. Martin Luther taught that certainly God can work through political leaders, but he also admitted that this is rarely the case. Rather, God most often works around them, using unlikely people to accomplish extraordinary things like MLK, like you, like me. This is why I'm attending the Women's March on Washington next weekend, along with a whole host of other people doing something extraordinary together as a bunch of ordinary people. The word of God comes unexpectedly to our very turbulent world. We just celebrated this at Christmas. God's word comes not as a powerful king that people expected, not as a wealthy tycoon, but as the poor son of a single mom, a refugee born of a migrant people. This is our God, who stirs up hope 
among the poor and the outcast by becoming poor and outcast himself. A God who shows strength and vulnerability and power in humility. One who enters our world of broken people and broken systems as one who cannot be broken. Politics will be around until the very last person draws their very last breath. And Christians in this world will be increasingly challenged to be faithful servants of a servant God who models mercy and love in a time when these things are mocked. But it's where we are. It's our time. It's our world. We're not all living separate lives in our own private rooms. We're all tossed in this together, wrestling and grappling on the same floor, and it's messy. Decisions are made and ballots are cast. Governments and empires and dynasties rise and fall, and with them, their leaders, some virtuous, some monstrous. But when time as we know it finally runs out, it is God's word alone that remains, not our divisive ideologies. God has always inserted God's word of love into humans' politically tumultuous times, and God's word has always prevailed. God had the first word when God spoke us and all that is into existence, and God will have the final word, that word, which will resound throughout the cosmos long after our voices cease is unconditional and infinite love.